Welcome back, everybody, to the podcast with me, Jonathan Puddle. This is episode 61. You guys, I have just finished editing this podcast, and I am honestly overjoyed. I am overflowing with love and appreciation for the goodness of God. I am actually having a really hard time sitting here doing the rest of this. I want to just go and bask in the goodness of our God. So uh, I'm going to go and do that, but but I'm going to put this together for you guys so that you can enjoy it too. My guest is Father Kenneth Tanner, who uh, some of you may have seen from his wonderful memes that he posts. Uh, he is a, a priest in the Episcopal Church. He lives in Michigan. And we had a wonderful conversation about the character of God and participating in his divine life. So the first half is sort of Father Kenneth Spire, where he came from. And in the second half, we get richly into this participative discussion on God. And I think you're going to enjoy it. Here you go. The character of God is really something that's important to me. And I think it's the source of so much misunderstanding of our faith and of uh, the gospel. And it's important to me, deeply important that we get that right. And so anyway. Well, I'm interested to know then um, how you grew up. Did you, did have, you're a member, you're in a, you're a priest in the Episcopal church, but you're a, you're in a charismatic uh, group of the Episcopal church. Uh, and then, yeah. How did you end up here? What's your upbringing? Yeah, so I was raised Pentecostal by a multi-generational Pentecostal families on my, my mother and my father's side in the South. So my father's people are from East Tennessee and the revivals that took place there around Cleveland. Wow. And my mother's family are from Florida um, and other places, the Carolinas and Georgia, both sides of the family. And uh, so I was raised in a very, in the Church of God. It's a classical Pentecostal church and upbringing. My grandparents were very classical Pentecostal. So um, a lot of joy, a lot of exuberance, a lot of, um, you know, and, and, and in, in many respects, besides, you know, speaking in tongues, you know, it was very, most everything else was a, a very evangelical identity, sure. you know, personal conversion to Jesus Christ, uh, an emphasis on the blood, uh, sacrifice, atonement, the cross, um, daily Bible reading and, and prayer, um, personal relationship with Jesus. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Sunday school with, you know, with flannel graphs and the whole nine yards. Um, yes. <laughs> the, the difference would have been, you know, speaking in tongues and, um, but otherwise, you know, sort of how, how a Baptist, you know, grew up in the South would be the same, you know, sort of faith that I was, you know, brought into, you know, my father was killed in Vietnam in 1970. Mm-hmm. I was just about five years old. And my mother, about five years after that, remarried a, a, a youth minister of the Church of God. Her father was a pastor in the Church of God. And he, in a few years, took us into more charismatic circles and the charismatic movement was, you know, in its second decade in the latter seventies when he took us into that. And that was my experience, you know, my, my upper elementary, middle school, high school, you know, college years was the charismatic movement. 
And of course, as many of your listeners and you yourself would understand, has many different facets and directions. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was a, it was like Pentecost happening in the Catholic Church and the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church and the Lutheran Church. And all those different traditions brought their, their sort of orientation to all the questions to this charismatic experience. But also there was lots of new things that came along, sort of new quote unquote teachings. And my parents, God bless them, tended to ride every wave of something new idea that came along. So um, by the time I got to Oral Roberts University, which is where I, I, I went to school uh, from my sophomore year on, I was then in the Assemblies of God School in California the first year. Um, I was starting to get weary of, um, of I don't know, charismatic um, enthusiasm, um, sort of the just teachings that were coming from all sorts of places, um, some of which were interesting, others of which were sort of horrible, you know, and and, and I remember, I mean, I've, I've told the story before, but it, it's very paradigmatic in my life. And I, I, I mean, I'm not expecting it to mean um, obviously the same thing to everyone, but it was the day the shuttle Challenger blew up mm -hmm. in 1986, in January. Um, we, or Roberts, I would have been in my, um, I would have been in my 80, 84, 85, 85, I would have been in my second half of my second year there. And, uh, you know, the campus was very TV, film-oriented, uh, lots of people. In fact, my friend Bill Weir is, uh, works for CNN. There's people, we, friends of ours in Hollywood. But, um, you know, everybody saw this thing because we had closed-circuit TV all throughout the dorms, the learning center, everywhere. And we gathered for this chapel service, which we did, you know, multiple times a week. Um, and we got in there and the pastor said, you know, this horrible thing has happened, um, you know, today and it's, you know, it's, it's terrible for Americans. It's, we're, you know, it's sad, but we're here to praise God. And inside these four walls, we're going to just exalt his name and so forth and so on. And they, you know, they had a couple drummers, a bunch of guitars, pianos, other instruments, lots of singers. And they just, you know, launched into like a praise service. And I was like, I sat down and I was like, I can't do this anymore. I, it, there's, if, if what's happening in the real world outside and suffering has no place in here and as mm. human beings, we can't process what's happening here. We've got to go do something else. And, yes. you know, there's a healthy dose of escapism, you know, in my Pentecostal upbringing and in a lot of charismatic religion, you know, of, you know, um, kind of leaving behind this, you know, broken world and going to Definitely. some plane, which gets reflected in the worship a lot. And um, I mean, I was vague. I mean, I was starting to become aware as a young adult that that all of these influences. But I just that day I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. So interestingly enough, the only day I remember a member of the theology faculty speaking at ORU, and a lot of people don't understand this about ORU, founded in the late 60s in the charismatic renewal. And just like I said, 
people from all the whole church that had this experience and people from like Brown and Missouri quit positions they had, tenured positions and came to teach mm. at our so the faculty were outstanding. Yeah. I mean, we were reading, you know, we were, we were reading Flannery O'Connor and we were reading Robert Alter, the, you know, the literary Jewish scholar and, you know, um, uh, Rabbi Heschel. And I mean, wow. you know, we read everybody, you know, and so, um, but the spiritual life of the campus had been by the mid eighties had been taken over by the word of faith movement. Sure. So we used to have a lot of those celebrities come in and, and speak and so forth. And the only time I remember, um, a faculty member speaking was that service. And he got up, um, and he was a Pentecostal historian. Um, and he got up and talked about how he and his wife had come to experience her death from cancer, um, as a participation in the sufferings of Jesus mm. and how Jesus had was, they came to experience Christ suffering with them, with his wife and the way she was suffering and, and his suffering and seeing her diminish and die. And I was sitting there thinking, I want to know more about that. Um, and so uh, within about a week or two, it's just the way my, this is true of life in general, as I found this book by Thomas Howard, um, I picked it up in the bookstore and the first chapter was called Evangelical Not Enough. The first chapter of the book was detailing his life growing up. You know, he's the brother of Elizabeth Elliot, you know, through Great Gates of Splendor, you know, um, Jim Elliot, who was slain with his colleagues and they went down into the bush and, yes, and yes. Uh, but he, you know, Wheaton grad, um, you know, professor at Gordon College and all night. He's describing growing up in a, you know, evangelical setting with flannel grass of Sunday school and lots of blood, you know, G- blood of Jesus hymns and personal devotion, you know, relationship with Jesus, all these things in the first chapter. And he was like, all of these things are beautiful. And that's how I feel about it. Like my, my Pentecostal grandparents and my mother, I mean, I love my Pentecostal heritage. I do. I right today. I do. But, you know, it's kind of like, I started to see that there was something more beyond the experience of my own community growing up in the broader church. Yes. And, and so I was like, Oh, this is interesting. I want to, so I, second chapter, he starts talking about Irenaeus and my life hasn't been the same. (laughs) You know, I, you know, that salvation is not just about my personal soul, but God's interested in saving my body too. And he's interested in saving the planet. It's his creation that he made good, that he had made humanity good. And that that's the beginning of the story that the, that the creeds and the scriptures and the Christian tradition tells is of a, of a good God who makes a good world because he doesn't make anything that's not good, who becomes what he makes. He makes human beings in his image. And can only become, um, he's good God, he can only become what is essentially good. So to become human is to become, you know, something that's good. In order to redeem us from the fact that we collectively have walked away from love and sown all this confusion and death and, 
um, and suffering into the world and uh, just gave me this, you know, huge vision of what salvation means, mm. you know, and that this world is what God wants to save. He's not going to destroy it. He's, you know, he's, he's come to save the human race and to do the kind of job that God, God sets out to do a job. He sets out to do a job. Um, he's going to get it done. And he's set out to set, save the human race. And because he loves uh, the cosmos and he loves humanity. And so I just was off to the races after that moment. And um, yeah. Yes. Praise God. Oh, I love that. I, yeah. uh, yeah, my, my journey would be not dissimilar in a lot of ways. Uh, I can see myself at a lot of those different points. Uh, you know, if we're not allowed to be sad about this, that's a problem. If if we're not allowed to be honest about our suffering, that's a problem. Uh, if, if this is all just escapism, like, yeah, I remember kind of feeling like I was calling BS on a, on a lot of stuff in my own tradition. And again, like like you said, I love the charismatic movement. I love, well, movements maybe the wrong word. I love the I love the Holy Spirit, and I love what God's That's Spirit right. does in yeah. His people when yeah. given yeah. freedom to move. Uh, yeah, and and we've learned good things about God by allowing Him His free reign. <laughs> But yeah, there's there's it's often accompanied very strongly by this uh, kind of like it's like a baptized fundamentalism that's like mm-hmm. let's quickly get away from here to go and be with Jesus forever because we've discovered how wonderful Jesus is. Well, yes, Jesus is wonderful, uh, but he's yeah. so wonderful <laughs> that yeah. he's not limiting. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I, it, and so there was always, you know, sort of two reasons that were offered in the movement you and I grew up in as to why you might be suffering. One is that you're doing something, there's sin in your life or, you know, um, et, et cetera. And the other possibility is that your faith is not what it should be, exactly. right? So there's always something wrong with you because otherwise you should be everything should be more or less going well with you and of course you and i i'm sure i did saw abuses of spiritual gifts yeah. uh, manipulation um of people um and just bad acting like you know can be found in any you know any form of the church Right. But historically, when you look at these um, spirit movements, you know, going back to Montanus, and we're going to be historical Christian, we can see that there have been uh, in, in when there is an emphasis on gifts of the spirit and, and this sort of activity, which I think is vital to the church's life. Sometimes it, it's accompanied historically. It's always it has been accompanied at times by um a, a vacuum of more of gifts that are like that bring like discernment mm. and accountability and um, administration and apostleship and other things that bring order, foundation, oversight, um, wisdom um, to more ecstatic 
expression yes. of of the the spirit. And you know, we also by by connecting with the church that has been around forever, begin to understand the spirit's role exceeds you know all of our wildest charismatic expectations because the spirit of God is present in the creation of the world. Um, it is the spirit of God that gives us breath and all things, breath and life. The spirit of God who accompanies the children of Israel um, and all of the moments of their life as a nation. The spirit of God uh, is instrumental in the conception of Jesus and the womb of the virgin and so forth and so on. I mean, it's not just you know, the Holy Spirit didn't just show up again in the you know late 19th century and the early 20th century and sort of leave the church, you know, as we were, I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, we were sort of popularly taught, you know, the Spirit of God sort of showed back up and we all went to work again. For sure. <laughs> when back, the Spirit of God, you know, um, inspired the writing of Scripture. Um, we believe that the Spirit of God um, helped the church decide what were the authentic witnesses to Christ and the New Testament, um, and, uh, you know, uh, inspired the church uh, in the formation of the creeds, and, and in, you know, the holy example of all of these people that have lived in all these various cultures and times and places, and have sought to walk with Jesus, and they all have, you know, preached sermons or written letters or, uh, you know, told stories of their experiences, and the whole thing is undergirded, surrounded by the breath of God, you know, by the fire of God, by the, by the power of God, you know? And so, um, yeah. Yes. Amen. I mean, I, the church I'm a part of grew out of the, you know, the t- so-called Toronto blessing in the, in the nineties. And so right on. Th- there would be some people who would be tempted to kind of, yeah, oh yeah, well, God came back in 1994 <laughs> and, you know, had been absent for some time. Uh, yeah. Now, if nobody would, nobody would publicly say that, but but there, sure. but there can sometimes be a cultural pressure to think along those lines. Um, that now and, we've now we've re, now we've re- recovered the true truth. Um, and every group of Christians does this. It's really interesting. It's not just Charismatics and Pentecostals that do this. Um, one of the things that it's constantly been a companion to me since that moment at ORU is the realization that I don't see everything there is to see of Jesus. Hmm. There, everything there is to see of God. If I'm only living, walking, praying with, working with people from my own tradition, um, it's, it's, it's an edge. It's been an exegetical journey where people like Joe Fessio helped me read John 6, a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest, who helped me to read John 6 in a way that I'd never seen it. I'm the true bread, which has come down from heaven to give life to the world. If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have my life in you, and you'll receive resurrection and so forth, which I hadn't as a Pentecostal or charismatic read in that way, right? And so we begin to read the scriptures with Methodists and Anabaptists and Presbyterians and Charismatics and, and or the Orthodox. And we began to see, um, and, and we pray with them and we do, uh, the work of the gospel with them and we become friends with them. We began to drop these prejudices. We begin to drop these assumptions that we have 
about the body of Christ. And we began to see that even though Christ doesn't want, the, the God doesn't want us divided. John 17 is very clear. You know, Jesus says, let them be one as you and I are one and uh, with the spirit. And, uh, and, you know, we're human. And so the church, because of sin, because of arrogance, because of our pride, uh, because of our need to be in control, our, our misunderstanding of the character of God and of power and everything else, we have all these divisions in the church, but it's not what God intends. I do think that God has worked above and around and through all of our sin to create the capacity for each of these groups separately to see something about himself that the other group doesn't see. Mm. And, 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 and that, and when we come together, we begin to see the full mosaic of who God is Um, when we're, you know, when we we're listening to the East and we're listening to the West, when we're paying attention to what the Reformation is saying, but also the Catholic uh, church. And uh, so, um, you know, what are Anabaptist brothers and sisters who have a very different understanding of Jesus teaching than we do. Um, So it's, we start to see a fuller, you know, and a, a more beautiful portrait. And uh, so this has also been an animating aspect of my journey with Jesus in the 30 years since I, well, longer, almost 35 years now, since I first encountered Irenaeus, you know. Yes. Through Tom, yeah. Yes. Well, how, how else could we hope to encapsulate and understand uh you know, an infinite God who creates something out of nothing. <laughs> yeah. 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 With, with our, with our beautiful and wonderful, though they are faculties that are so much less. Um, so how did you end up then uh, where you are today, you know, serving in the capacity you are now? Yeah. So I, after, um, after college, I went, working. I, I, I had all kinds of jobs. I I worked um, as a carpenter. I worked at a newspaper. So journalism was, uh, uh, journalism and English were, um, you know, focuses of my study. And uh, I worked as a communications director for a couple of different corporations. Uh, and uh, all the while, I had this increasing interest, um, which had really been in my life since my since early, very early age, both in scripture and in theology, which I had continued to sort of pursue a lot in, in my reading. I did a ton of reading uh, from my early years in a lots of different, from lots of people from lots of different backgrounds. And that just became increasingly, increasingly, um, I start. I, I got a hold of Tom, Robert Weber, who was at the time teaching at Wheaton, and he introduced me to the work of Tom Oden, and I started um, a dialogue with both of them, which led me to involvement with Tom and the Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture Project. Um, I attended a parochial seminary of our denomination uh, and began to study for first the diaconate. I was ordained in 1992 and then in 1996, the priesthood. Um, our communion is an unusual story. Um, it's Pentecostals, Charismatics, or Wave Evangelicals, 
and others in many, many settings across the United States and Canada and the Philippines and South America um, and Africa who were uh, encountering in the 80s, 70s, 80s, early 90s in their own congregation, the sacred year, um, the, um, the prayer book, um, different traditions of prayer and Eucharist, um, reading the fathers, being really interested in the way they practice pastoral care, which doesn't get a lot of, I think, needs to really also be rediscovered, uh, and help the poor and take care of the, the needy. Um, and so not just their worship, but the way they lived and their prayer um, in the world, and had really had been introducing all these practices into our Pentecostal charismatic churches. Yes. There wasn't anything at the time like the Anglican mission in America. There wasn't anything like the Anglican church in North America and so forth. And you can go back to the early nineties and read in the wall street journal, the Los Angeles times and Christianity today about our movement. But you, there were articles in, in a magazine called ministries today. It's a charismatic ministerial like magazine for ministers. And we just, just discovered that there were scores of us all over the country were doing this and came together. But there were, there were a lot of Episcopalians in the United States who were, who had experienced renewal concerned about where the Episcopal church was headed politically and otherwise. And just is Jesus the, you know, the only way to salvation and, and other issues. They were also looking for a home. So the, the, the charismatic Episcopal church of which I am a part is a, a number of Episcopal church, e, T, what's called the, the Episcopal church now, TEC, left the Episcopal church in the late 80s, early 90s, mid 90s, late 90s, and joined our movement. Hmm. And then later, there started to become movements out of the TEC, like in, like the Commission America first, and then Cana and ACNA and so forth and so on. Um, our group is in dialogue with ACNA. Um, and, uh, so that's, that's a little bit of what, how I came to be serving. I served at a parish in California for about, um, seven years. And then I went to Touchstone Magazine in Chicago and I was actually on the staff there for six years. I the Journal of American Christianity, I don't know if you're familiar with it or not, brings Roman Catholic, Orthodox, and um, Protestant Christians together, cool. thinking about culture and theology and the church. And wow. I didn't do a lot of past, I didn't do a lot of ministry or pastoral work. I was attending a congregation with a lot of students from Wheaton at the time. Um, I, you know, I got married after um, college and got, you know, we, uh, we had seven, we have had seven children. We moved our family to Chicago, and I wasn't really doing ministry. Then about 05, 03, I started wanting to be back in the pulpit. In 05, a congregation in Michigan invited me to come and be its pastor of our denomination. And I uh, accepted that, and I've been the pastor here for 15 years. It's a small congregation, about 225 members that... Um, is about a half an hour north of Detroit. Beautiful. And um, uh, I love it. I, I love it's. A, I love the people. Um, 
you know, at 15 years, you go through a lot of transitions in the life of a congregation. We had a lot of uh, beautiful saints who were, when I arrived, I've, I've buried a lot of them. A lot of them are in nursing uh, facilities or can't leave home anymore. Um, but we also have a lot of, you know, sort of young families that have been around from the beginning. These days, there's a lot of young families with little children that are newer. And, um, so a lot of, a lot of single, uh, folks. Um, and it's a very young congregation for, uh, a church, um, uh, you know, the sort of congregation, sort of church we're doing. Yeah. Uh, And I'm grateful for that. That's beautiful. Oh, I love it. I think if I, well, I don't know. I said to Brian Zond once that if it was up to me, I would be Anabaptist charismatic, but maybe that's not accurate. I feel like maybe if it was up to me, I would some kind of liturgical, charismatic, um, nonviolent. <laughs> well, I think that that describes Andrew Klager, doesn't it? I mean, yes, true. I, think, well, I, mean, I don't know. I don't know how charismatic it is. It definitely describes Brad. Yes. Um, you know, who who has a lot of the same as you know, background. Um, but uh, I, I do think a sort of convergence between Anabaptism and spirit movements and orthodoxy and, um, yeah, all of these things are really uh, create, would be a creative way of going forward in the life of the church in America. I really think we need Anabaptism right now. I really think we need the vision of the Eastern Church to help us with the unique problems we have, um, nationalism in the American Church. Mm -hmm. Um, We need Anabaptism to speak to that, um, to our addiction to violence. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll take a little break to thank my Patreon supporters. We've got 47 people right now today who support me every month on Patreon, and they really make this possible. My writing, my podcasting, everything else that I'm doing. I quit my job to do this over a year ago now, full time. So thank you so much to all of you. Anna is my latest supporter. Thank you. And anybody else uh, you want to join up, please consider it. $3 a month gets you in. Patreon.com slash Jonathan Puddle. Very easy to sign up, and you'll be supporting me, uh, keeping great guests like Father Kenneth on the show and putting all the work in that's required. Thank you so much. We need um, uh, a really authentic, you know, understanding of the spirit um, to enliven us again. Um, And we also need good, solid theology grounded in the tradition, especially the Eastern fathers to help us with the character of God. Um, and a longer view of, um, of history and of God's providential purposes. Um, and that grounds us in the real world, grounds us in the South, you know, and, and keeps us work, understanding we have a part to play, participating in, um, in, in stewarding creation and in being involved in our social the social life of our nations and um, to, to, to bear the gospel um, uh, in all walks of life, you know? And um, so, yeah, I want to pick up on one thing that you've, you've, and I'm wondering a couple of times you've, you've used the word participating, right? 
you yeah. you encountered this this professor who had talked about them participating in the sufferings of Christ as his wife was dying of cancer, mm-hmm. and even now of you know the way you just talked about participating and, and caring, I feel like some part of the the experience that's been common for a lot of Christians that I feel like a lot of my generation are really stumbling against is this idea that we have to do all the work that we, you know, it's kind of like this, this evangelical, like you've got to be on mission. It's urgent. It's all important. The time is short. Um, hopefully I'm following the will of God correctly. I definitely don't want to screw that up. Uh, all of this kind of stuff. And there's kind of a shift if we're talking about participation that actually God has been doing something is he inviting us to be involved in his work uh, that I think shifts our role and, and our responsiveness? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I had, I had a friend named Jack Heaslip. Um, he was a Church of Ireland priest, um, served as the, the uh, school counselor for the, um, the, the, the young people at Mount Temple in Dublin, um, where, um, you know, the members of U2 went to school mm. and met each other and was later their uh, chaplain for, um, the tours, um, from about the late, the, yeah, 99 on, um, who used to talk about, um, you know, people would ask him, you know, uh, what's God's will for my life? Where am I supposed to be? What am I supposed to be doing with my life? I want to do something for God. And, you know, how do I find out, you know, um, what God has for me? And his response was always, God is already at work in your neighborhood, in your church, in your world, in your life. And you, you discovering what he's already doing and joining the work. Of God, yes. I really think that's important that we that we understand that that the world is saved and that we are saved by the activity of God, not by our activity, but by the activity of God. And He's already at work to save the creation, to save our cultures, to save humanity. And so we've got to join. We've got to discern where He's at work and 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 join in that. So the, you know, the participation, which has become a, 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 a big category and a lot of you reading, if you read theology and you listen to theologians and people talk about it, I, the one, the verses that I, that I'm always interested in because they're Eucharistic is First Corinthians where, you know, Paul goes into his excursus about, um, well, he's talking about eating food offered to idols. And then he just stops in the middle of this discussion about eating food offered to idols. And he says, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Hmm. Is not the cup that we bless a participation in his blood? I, I don't know if there is a more straightforward doctrine of what's happening at the table than right there in the scriptures. I'm always telling people between John 6 and 1 Corinthians, I mean, we, we have the theology of, of the Eucharist right there. Um, yes, it's beautiful that people have meditated on it from there, meditated on Jesus saying, this is my body, this is my blood. 
But uh, Romans 6, 2, um, so baptism and Eucharist are really important here. Is, do you, don't you remember, Romans 6, that when you were baptized, you were baptized into the death of Jesus? Mm. So there's this, like, real participation in the triune life um, that occurs by baptism, by Eucharist, by communion with the sacred with our scriptures, um, by communion with other Christians who are also the real presence of Christ in the world, um, by communion with the poor, which God says he is always with. Yes. In these ways, baptism, Eucharist, scriptures, other Christians, the poor, um, even he inhabits the praises of his people. So as we pray and and give God thanks, um, we become participants in the divine life. They, they take us up into their life together. And uh, the one God takes us up into the, the life that those three persons share. And um, so it's really meaningful for me. It, you can read a lot about all of this, um, but th- that would be my way of expressing it. Yeah. Yes. Lots of good people writing about it. Yes. But I, I love it because it's so much broader and 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 deeper than well say the sinner's prayer and then jesus comes and lives in your heart and then you won't sin anymore or but 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 except that you will so yeah yeah like there seems to be all these kind of weird dichotomies that we run into right like god is sovereign uh but also that you have free will uh but it's like unless you say the sinner's prayer then it's it's kind of like your free will is a is bigger than whatever God's intention towards you is. It's it. What's interesting to me, like, you know, the, um, here's something from Robert Jensen. Sanctification is often misunderstood as a progress kicked off by baptism. This has to be false. He says, baptism initiates into the trying life itself among itself. What would be progress to from that? If baptism introduces us into the triune life, how can we progress from being introduced into their very life? So he says, rather, sanctification is the continual return to our baptism. So um, we, we, we are sacramentally united to the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are sacramentally united to the triune life. And um, there's no, once that occurs, there's not a progress that can take place in that because we already are participating in his life. Um, there is a continual return to participation in their life where we have, we, we can, we can stop participating in their life. We have this capacity. And it's, it's really just about returning to the fullness of their life um, in a daily way, you know, um, in, a, in a moment by moment, in a way, we can continue to participate in their life, which is, of course, entirely a gift, you know, yes. not dependent upon on, on what we do. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Though, though, if you. Yeah. And, which harkens back to what you were saying about God, you know, a good God creating a good world and, and good mm-hmm. humanity for us to partake of, participate in, be a part of. 
if you believe that we're fundamentally wrong or broken or dirty, uh, why yeah. would you why would you return? That's not a good thing to do. Yeah. So it's like um, I, I do think this is really critical, and that that a lot of Christians don't understand that we were made good. And this is true, I, I think, of Jewish understanding as well, that's best I've been able to come to understand it, is that we're made good, and you can't blast the goodness out of what God creates. They're still fundamentally good. Are you broken? You bet. I mean, all you have to do is turn the radio on or the TV, read a newspaper, I don't know, have any kind of active engagement in your community, I'm a chaplain for our, for our sheriff's office. Um, you know, we've had a rash of teen suicide that I've been on scene for, and it's taken a bit of a toll on me. Um, but, but yes, the world, something's not right. But fundamentally, human beings are created good, and God can only become what is good, and when he becomes human, he's becoming something that is fundamentally good. Broken, having decided to walk away from love, uh, sowing confusion and sowing death into the creation, into our communities, our neighborhoods, our nations, our cultures, absolutely. Um, and, and so he comes to offer us forgiveness. He comes to offer us participation in his life. I was just noticing because I had written something about you. We were talking about this before we came on line. I, you know, the, 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 the lectionary for Sunday yes. was the parable of the Pharisee and the, you know, the publican or the tax collector. And I had been listening to someone preach this text um, on the, my way to church on Sunday morning with my wife. And he had said that the, that the publican or the tax collector walked away because of his contrition for his sin had walked away justified. And I was like, no, God already has objectively justified and forgiven the human race um, in all the ways that he becomes incarnate among us. He's done it by taking all of our sins upon himself in his conception, taking all of his, all of his sins upon, upon him upon himself at our at his at his baptism by participating in all the Hebrews says be tempted on all the ways that we are without sin. And yes, of course, all of this being understood through the cross, through his participation in our suffering and death and taking upon himself all of these things, right? But listen to this. Those people were you know saying to me, well, you know, God doesn't forgive until we repent. That is not the gospel. And there are plenty of examples of this. One is the paralytic who's lowered and Capernaum is lowered through the roof. He cannot even get to Jesus. He says nothing. He does nothing. His friends lower him into this crowded space where Jesus is teaching. And Jesus says, so you will understand that the son of man has authority to forgive sin. Rise and walk. The man has said nothing. He's done nothing, and Jesus declaring his power to forgive sin over this human being who has said, literally said, and done nothing. So I guess what (laughs) I would say about 
about agency, about participation in God, is that we also really need to understand agency. And that is, God is the agent of the world's salvation. God is the agent of my salvation. God is the agent of humanity's salvation. Um, and it, it, he is doing all of this, forgiving us before, dying for us before, justifying us before we respond you know, to the love that is offered, the forgiveness that is offered, the sacrifice that is offered, the death that is offered, so that death might die in us. And so that we're, we're infected with this confusion, brokenness, death, and God comes to rescue us. And so we, we see very clearly in Romans, through one man, death entered. How much more through one man has life been granted to mm -hmm. all? Right. So does it require is I mean, I should say, is our faith response part of that? Absolutely. But it comes after God has yes. already God has already loved. God has already forgiveness. God has already life. God is already light. Yes. And um, yeah. So yes. I was talking with a friend. I was talking for, with a friend while driving home from from Detroit, and you know, I could see that he was wrestling through a few things uh, to do with some some stuff in his life, and and I, I could see that he was stumbling kind of against this thing of is God fundamentally good towards me, and and I just kind of stopped at one point and I said to him, "Dude, what if?" Because um, because you know he he would say that he became a Christian three or four years ago, and uh, and I just said you know what if God's been just kind of interested in you and pursuing you and knocking on your door, you know, since the very moment you were conceived and uh, didn't require you <laughs> to jump through any of the hoops that, that you felt you needed to for whatever reason. And we, we dialogued on that for a minute, but again, I just, I saw him stop and the penny dropped and he looked at me and it was like, well, well, that would change everything. That that's a different story. That's a different story than what I thought I I would been told. I I would respond very differently uh, to that God. Mm. Those are the moments that are so so vital right now, and really telling the story, you know, and and being witnesses. You know, we have this great opportunity right now to be witnesses to the character of God, um, of the goodness of God, of the, lo of, of the love of God. Um, yes, he's coming to bring uh, justice and judgment, but it's such a good, that is such good news yes. because the one who is love and who loves the world and loves each of us, Knowing the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, who loves us in that way, when he shows up to bring judgment in our life, to bring judgment in the world, that's really, really good news. I can't wait for him to take all the vestiges of darkness and sin and temptation and the areas in my life where each of us knows we're still broken. And, and by the, by the, by whatever means necessary, because whatever means there are is totally love for me. 
he's not interested in my destruction. He's interested in me reaching the ends to which he intended me from, for, to, for all of us from the beginning. Mm. So that's a God we can trust. Um, he's not out for our destruction, but out for our thriving in the, in his image and in, for all the purposes God made us. Um, another really interesting, like, example of this, I, I preached this on Sunday, and I, I have to thank my friend Scott Johns for reminding me of this, but in Chariots of Fire, remember that Eric Little, who is the Scottish evangelical missionary, you know, he's talking, he doesn't run on Sundays, remember? It's like, yeah. that's the thing. On the Sabbath, he won't run. And, you know, the, the committee and the Olympic Committee, the British Committee, are trying to get him to run. What do you mean you're not going to run? We're trying to win medals for the, you know, for the queen. And he's like, I, I can't do it. And, and, but he's, he's describing running and he's like, I, I run because I sense God's pleasure in my doing what he made me to do. Right. Mm -hmm. In contrast, there's the other young man that's a runner. And he's just, he says, I have, when that, that gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my own existence. And there's a, there's a tremendous contrast there between uh, those two ideas of God and those two ideas of the human person and those two, because we don't have to justify our existence. God has justified us and has made us for a good, for, for, it made us just because he loves us Come on. and he, he simply is a good God and he simply has made us for communion with him and he loves us no matter what. Yes. Right. And so, and so that's really, really good news. And once we know that, then we can start to say, wow, God takes pleasure and who I am and what he's, you know, made me to do, whether it's to, you know, um, be someone who introduces people to other people through podcasts, um, or works with young people, or you're a carpenter, or you're a painter, or you, um, you work in the health professions, or you try to rescue children at the border, or whatever it is that God's made you to do, you know, um, uh, guard the peace or whatever. Um, uh, help the sick, um, wh whatever God's called you to do, you begin to understand your, who God is. You begin to understand who you are. And it's just about God. Uh, another thing uh, along these lines, Athanasius says, and it's actually in Contra Gentis, which is the first half before you get to on the incarnation. He says that God doesn't envy existence to anyone. He wants human beings to exist as he exists forever. Mm. And so he comes in order to give us his kind of existence. That's what he wanted for us from the beginning in order to restore us to his everlasting, non-ending kind of being, which is what he wants to restore us to, not to, not, not to, to rescue us from, from existential death. He, he can't do that unless he becomes one of us. And so he falls with us until he's fallen below the lowest falling human being mm -hmm. in order to raise 
the human race back into his kind of existence. This is really good news <laughs> and, and, and a God that we can trust. And when we understand that and we understand his, that his judgments and his justice are coming in order that we might continue to exist, not to destroy us, it just changes everything, man. Yes. Yes. Amen. Ah, uh, I could do this all day, but I know you've got to go. Uh, Father, would you, um, would you pray for us? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Lord, I just thank you for uh, Jonathan uh, and for this program. Uh, I thank you for everybody that's listening to this. Uh, I ask, Lord, that you would come and reveal that you are love to every person that's listening to this, that they might understand and have an experience that you are glad that they exist, that you've made them good in your image, that you want them to experience your kind of life, life that doesn't end, not just at the end of their life, but now and for eternity, and that you're speaking uh, a blessing over them, as I say, uh, to them in my own my own words, but they're the words of God through his servant Paul um, and through the wisdom of the church. God was in Christ Jesus, reconciling the world to himself, not counting humanity's sins against us. God loves you. God has forgiven you. God is not angry with you. And God will never leave you or forsake you. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. Amen. Oh, man, how good is that? (laughs) Thank you, Father Kenneth, for sharing with us. So if you need to go and bask in the goodness of God, why don't you go and do that? Take some time, sit back, put your hand on your heart, and just feel the joy that God has for you. Feel the joy of your heart reveling in the goodness of God. If you want to listen to something a little similar, I did an interview with William Paul Young, the author of The Shack. Uh, That'll be linked here in the show notes. Go and have a listen to that one as well, because uh, these guys are, are birds of a feather. Oh, and Brad Jersek, of course, I interviewed Brad. Go have a listen to that one, too. These guys uh, have been seen in the wild together. And what I wouldn't give to sit in a room with all those men at once and just revel at the goodness of God. Praise the Lord. Wonderful. Have you guys have a wonderful week. God bless you all. Hey, go to jonathanpuddle.com, read a blog, listen to another podcast. Uh, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Jonathan Puddle. Grace and peace to you all.